Specifically you, dearest patron, the inner circle, subscribers to the BungaCast Reading Club. Welcome back, um, and welcome if you're new um, to the Reading Club. Just to tell you what we've done in the first half of the year, or the first third of the year, we discussed Martin Hagelin's excellent This Life, which was, um, I think, a very enriching discussion over the course of four different episodes, um, delving into the questions of mortality, free time, and what a politics would look like that was oriented around free time and a idea of secular faith. Anyway, um, I think it was really good, if I may say so myself. Um, George, Phil, hello. Um, I think you guys thought it was very good too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we did. <laughs> I did, yeah. No, it was great. I um, The Hagland discussion was, um, was very good and uh, well worth revisiting, I think. And I think it's probably a book that, um, you know, we'll be going back to at different points as well. The connecting some of the kind of basic questions around freedom with questions of control who controls you the time Mm, of your life and i think that is you know that it's a productive way to think about um, politics in a very basic sense george yeah i also i mean we all agree it was good I think I did a particularly good job. Um, no, it was a you <laughs> no, know a cha- we don't a always we don't book. do this usually. So I think we'll I, pat I, ourselves on the back for five minutes. Most of what we listeners... do is shit. This was exceptional. This was this stood out by being actually good. Mm, okay, this was a well, diamond I was, in the rough. I thought my comments were very good. I mean, <laughs> so you know, yours and yours and Alex's comments were you know they were good filler content. I thought my insights were exceptionally germane. Oh. All killer, no filler. Um, no, I think, you know, it's an ambitious book, right? I mean, we talked about how he, you know, starts from, from some pretty basic philosophical premises and then tries to get all the way to, well, gets all the way to Martin Luther King in the end, but tries to get all the way to democratic um, socialism. Um, yeah, so there's some interesting, yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I hope listeners have, have already listened to that and we can build on it with um, the discussion of, I'm not going to steal your thunder, though, Alex. What are we discussing this? Well, this no, because I mean, it, it is, it is. This is, um, you know, I kind of um, got together the 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 things for the first third, and and the second third is George. And just one thing to say, I guess, if Hegland was a big book, but a, a, an easy read um, and a quite enjoyable read, this is a much smaller book, quite a small book, but it is a tough read. And we're going to try to do our utmost to, I guess, explain and um, unpick it um, for listeners, George. Yeah. So this, I guess it's like the three semesters of, of the year or the three terms. So we're now in the middle term or whatever. Um, and today we're talking about legitimation and crisis. So <clears throat> the second term crisis is probably a bit more commonplace than the first, which is maybe interesting in itself. Um, and we'll be exploring both through Jürgen Habermas's 1973 classic, first published in English in 1976, Legitimation uh, you crisis. You have to pronounce it like more Teutonic and with an accent, George. Legitimation crisis. Um, <laughs> That's South African. I, I just meant Jürgen Habermas. That was literally South African, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's wrong with my accents? 
You gotta say it's... Jürgen Habermas. I'm not you're, gonna you're, do that. You're boring us, George, with that accent. Oh, good grief. Um, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, um, let's say, deliberately mispronounce all German words with a with a very strong uh, and terrible English accent. Um, but no, Habermas is, um, yeah. Before we kind of go into a bit more about his, you know, his biography and his work, I thought it'd be useful to take our kind of collective temperature around this idea of crisis so I, I i was thinking about this a little bit i think you've got four four crisis options um or like four potential ways to characterize the sort of crisis tendencies we might have in capitalism today the first is uh, everything everything's fine it's always been fine always will be fine i.e there's no crisis it's just marxist whinging the second um that we're currently in a period of crisis these, these happen occasionally no one's perfect Maybe we had one in 2008 and we've, you know, we've maybe got one now. The third is we're, a condition, we're in a condition of perma-crisis. So we always always have been in crisis, always will be. We're always already in crisis or something like that. And then the fourth is that we're in a polycrisis. So we've had crisis, crises before. We had an economic one perhaps in 2008. But now we have a real doozy because it's an economic plus a political plus maybe a geopolitical. So it's got that kind of multidimensional uh, vibe to it. So of these four um positions what you know i thought we could revisit this at the end as well but where where are we starting from alex well i mean let me just start i guess with the most current kind of thing right the 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 especially amongst kind of policymakers, but not only um you know and intellectuals this idea of polycrisis and maybe we should dedicate an episode to the concept um might be a, a good idea because it's I mean, it's it's initially, you know, on face value, um, fairly convincing, right? There does seem to be all these crises piled up, but then it's like, okay, but what is actually new about that? Are we facing more crises today? Um, it, it, and it seems to suggest that the old-fashioned idea of crisis was like, you know, just an economic restricted thing and didn't ha- wasn't multidimensional. It's like, well, I think it's always been multidimensional. And then I guess to answer your question, I guess more directly, um, capitalism is crisis-ridden. It always has been and continues to be. Um, but I think, you know, it, as you hint at, it's something which has had disappeared a little bit from um, the political scene and also from intellectual reflections of it um, until, you know, the 2008 crisis because of that great moderation, as it was called. Um, you know, this big and boom and bust was a feature of unmanaged or liberal capitalism, um, you know, prior to the prior to the kind of mid 20th century. Um, and, you know, nowadays, I think everyone is aware of crisis. Things do feel like they're in crisis all the time um, without them, without things seeming severe or never coming to a head, I think, I guess is, is the point. So um, we have this weird situation of kind of permacrisis. Phil, would you agree? I think Alex kind of um, ranged effortlessly across those four uh, categories, and I'm not sure which one he may be landed on, but what, what would you, what would your thinking be? Mine is definitely not everything is fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Does anyone think everything is fine? Um, There's a guy drinking coffee, um, a dog maybe. He's He thinks everything's fine. You know, you might have seen that. that I that think, but the that point guy. that that's shared so widely is maybe indication that, you know, it's a it, it's a position which everyone satirizes. I don't no, know. If it's anyone, an interesting. Yeah. It is a genuinely interesting, you know, question. I think, and it is worth reflecting on a bit. So you know, there's the old joke like Marxists have predict correctly predicted um, five of the most recent you know 
three economic crises. Nine so, of the last four, I think, is the canonical yeah, whatever, way to say. Yeah, whatever, really, the, whatever really, the number is. Really delivered in a comic way there, Phil. <laughs> it's a, not a very a, funny joke. Bit of panache. So, it's not a very funny joke, but the point is like, you know, the overprediction of crisis is something which is associated with the left. Um, but it is also a word which is overused, you know, in different contexts. And it's worth thinking about um, what the different contexts are in which it is used. So I remember, um, you know, I mean, I suppose there's two, two, two events stick in my mind where I was taken a where I was taken aback by how relaxed some other people were. So this was in the aftermath of Brexit, um, involved in um, a network. I mean, some you know regular listeners of the podcast will know a uh, network called The Full Brexit. And in the people that we were kind of discussing to go, we were discussing with the various members of the network, kind of some joint positions that would go on the website to go with, the, with this particular campaigning network. And... Um, you know, uh, one some of the language about we wanted to talk about the decay of British political institutions and public life, and one of the other um, participants said, "No, this is like student Marxist student union boilerplate." You know, and I thought at the time, "Okay, ouch," um, but. As it turned out, you know, like it seems the view that British public institutions were and political institutions were genuinely, um, you know, they went through this kind of tortuous wrenching process, which, you know, as far as I know, parliamentary historians and constitutional historians and legal historians said it was only comparable to the breakup of the Tories and the Whigs and the crisis over um, the Corn Laws in the 18 in the first half of the 19th century or perhaps the home rule crisis in the run up to the first world war so at least at the parliamentary level you know the kind of the marxist boilerplate language seemed appropriate in the aftermath of the brexit referendum i think the difference is um you know so it depends on what level you're talking about crisis right so the economic crisis or the great it wasn't actually called i mean it was called the crisis of the time but what it's retrospectively called is the great financial crash and i think that's important the gfc right is the kind of language that we seem to have settled on to discuss 2008 and i think that's important because it didn't you know like it was dealt with quite efficiently at the time and the the kind of the long tail of its consequences, its political consequences were only felt much later. I think, in fact, you know, kind of in the mid 2010s and later than that, right? So there was a delay of about, you know, nearly 10 years in terms of its political consequences. And so perhaps that's why it wasn't really a crisis, you know, a financial crisis and a financial crash, but not really a general kind of systemic crisis. And just to build a tiny thing on that, I think it, it's also noteworthy that the crisis manifested itself most obviously as a political one. It shifted it into the political realm um, because the economic one was to a certain degree um, kind of buffered by the huge bailouts. Well, yeah. So, so you did not get the shake was, out and whatever that you would well, expect. Well, but that's, you know, that's what I'm saying, right? So the fact was that politically um, there was 
the capacity for a tremendous kind of policy coordination between the central banks under American leadership. Um, you know, uh, China was much less of a kind of competitor to the states back in 2008, and the Chinese economy was also just smaller. And so in those, and also you just had less um, domestic kind of turmoil. And so in that context, it was much easier to coordinate a response and to contain its consequences, not least with low interest mm. rates, right? So, I mean, I'm thinking out loud here, I suppose. Um, I suppose, so I think the difference is like that what we're experiencing now and oh, so let me, I mean, let me get this straight, you know, so I don't know, say like, say 10 years ago, we'll say in 2007, you'd say there's a crisis because, um, you know, like there's a bust up in this kind of technocratic centrist government between two of its leading figures. Nobody would yeah. care. Yeah, nothing mm. would matter. It would have no effect on people's incomes. It would have very little, no effect on people's living standards. You'd still be able to borrow. You'd still expect your house price to go up in value. You'd still be able to borrow cheaply as well, you know, and it would be fine, you know, like there would be no real consequence. Whereas I think the difference is now, we understand that the crisis is deeper and the language of it, though, we don't really have the language to capture this kind of deeper level. And so there's this kind of neologism of Adam Tuzes, or at least he's the one that's most associated with it, which is polycrisis. Before we move on, I want to make a just quick shout out for one of our um, guests that we had on, Albena Zmanova, who put forward the idea that we're in a crisis of crisis. Um, which was acute, but I think insightful way of saying that crises don't lead to systemic transformations as they did in the past. Um, and so I think that's also kind of struggling with this same question as to how far do we see kind of systemic transformation as a consequence of these of this kind of deep-rooted turmoil. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really excellent point and i guess that's my you know my kind of two cents or my starting point is very much that we have some elements of crisis today but the important one that it uh, seems to feel or to to look likely to lead to um to change that's not not present so there must be something i guess looking at older kind of models or understanding of of crisis like like habermas's from from the kind of early 70s i think it could be really interesting to see what applies and what doesn't because it feels like you could describe it there's a crisis of legitimacy there's not very high support um for political institutions of various different sorts but sort of so what it doesn't have any resolution and i guess that you know we can dig into this a bit more do do crises have to have uh resolutions or have to lead to that um yeah i mean that's a that is a that is a question for us to to unpick onto the matter at hand um now so i'm, I'm gonna just call him jürgen jürgen habermas i'm not gonna try for the german accent i'm just gonna keep it nice and anglo so yeah jürgen habermas's legitimation crisis so this is a book that i first read as an undergraduate i don't really remember um all that much of it other than probably thinking that it, it proved that capitalism had legitimation crisis tendencies as well as economic ones, which I, I, I knew or thought I understood that Marx had established. So, you know, it's just another reason to think, you know, capitalism's no good. Um, um, so it was kind of pretty influential in its in its day, one of Habermas's earlier, um, earlier books, but has, I think, become less central or very much less central to his, um, you know, to his oeuvre as he moved in the 80s away from a kind of engagement with Marxist themes to 
developing this um, two volume theory of communicative action, which is a uh, an interesting read, but a pretty that is a long book and it's got, well, it's two long books. Um, and this is a really ambitious project where, you know, he's trying to kind of go back to reform the sort of starting point or the foundation of like the entire like Western tradition of moral thinking, going through Weber and, and rationalization to, to kind of a new um, basis for social interaction, essentially in, in a, in a sort of action that he calls uh, communicative action. So I won't, I won't go into that um, too much. Um, but in terms of his, I guess, biography and, and standing, I think it's fair to say that Habermas is the dominant figure of the Frankfurt school after Horkheimer and Adorno, um, very much influenced by them and also by Weber as well. And as I mentioned, this idea of rationalization that he takes from Weber is, you know, the progress of reason through, through history, not a Marxist or Hegelian understanding, but very much a Weberian one that's key to his thinking. So very long <clears throat> career. Um, in addition to those two volumes of the theory of communicative action that I already mentioned, he's also written a, the- a history of the bourgeois public sphere, the structural transformation of the public sphere, and on different understandings of modernity as well. So Hegel, Nietzsche, etc., Heidegger, etc., in the structural transformation of the pub, uh, sorry, in the philosophical discourse of modernity. All his books have sort of similarish titles when he gets uh, gets going in the kind of the 80s and or late 70s onwards um and yeah just to say you know he's he's been a prominent public intellectual in germany taking various positions <laughs> um german history on one on german history which is basically don't be apologistic about nazis and and that period of german history nato intervention in kosovo he was for Rawlsianism, he was he was against, or he thought Rawls was wrong. Uh, European Union, he uh, thought it was good. Basically, federalism is is uh, brilliant. And um, Wolfgang Schreck, guest of this pod, uh, begged to differ, and a host of other issues. So, in terms of, I guess, starting point of engagement with Habermas, how familiar would you guys say you are with his um, with his uh, his work? Is this the f- the first? Habermas book or um, uh, Structural Transformation in the Public Sphere? Is, is that one you guys have uh, been influenced by? I can't say it's the first. You know, I honestly can't remember. So the first thing I read, because I'm sure the first Habermas thing I read was some kind of extract or selection as part of some, you know, undergraduate reading sample. The weird thing, rereading Legitimation Crisis now is that I'm sure I understood it better the first time I read it as an undergraduate (laughs) than I understand it now. And I don't know if that's because I've been made more stupid by social media in the intervening period. That's really possible. I mean, that was kind of a scary, actually a scary kind of experience, reading it and feeling dumber than I did. Maybe I was made dumber by reading it all that time ago. Um, or maybe like, you know, maybe it could have just been the arrogance of youth, you know, you're you're thinking, oh yeah, I got this. I get this. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought when I was young. So maybe you didn't know what you didn't know. And if you look back Mm. over your notes from the time, they're like incomprehensible nonsense. And you're like, oh, this, this guy, what an idiot. Looking back over my notes from the time, I can say I certainly had better handwriting, which makes me think that there has been some kind of de-skilling process at work in the intervening period. Yeah, I'm not I mean, sure you can blame bad handwriting on social media, but have a well, go. No, being on the computer certainly. But being anyway, on the I mean, computer, yeah. I, I I read this I think at the early stage of my masters, um, but then I but I was familiar with Habermas because I did international relations in 
um, from my undergrad. And he was just a, a name that was just kind of everywhere in the discussions. You know, this is kind of mid 2000s. So a kind of notion of, of uh, you know, perpetual peace, um, not his term, but, you know, um, anyway. Um, and I found it when I read th this specific book, I found it just completely, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. You know, it promised one thing. And I was like, I don't, what is all, what is this whole theoretical edifice that he's building up? Like, what are you actually saying? Um, and I found it a little bit more manageable this time, um, second time around, albeit, you know, over a decade, over a decade later. So you've got smarter and I've got dumber. Well, I was going to say that that was um, the, the tendency. Yeah. But, you know, we don't. We'll we meet. We'll meet that. in the middle at some point, I guess. <laughs> oh, um, that, yeah. see, but you haven't lost just... it all. That was pretty clever. That was pretty, pretty smart. Um, I guess I've, I, yeah, I, I honestly just don't remember. Um, so I, I can't really weigh, weigh in too much. I remember reading it, but I don't remember. I think there was, there was a, a few points where I thought, ah, oh, that's a really good, I need to, I need to kind of remember that. That's a great insight, but it's, um, I just think uh, just, it was just, just one very thing. complex language. Sorry, Alex. Yeah. In your biographical introduction, I mean, it maybe actually undersold the degree to which he is a massive public intellectual. And maybe that light has faded a little bit it precisely maybe because of our crisis ridden times but he i you know in these stupid polls which magazines do of like the greatest public intellectual alive right now blah 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 he was often number one you know um so and, and you know in a global sense so it's not just why in germany would take i don't know why anyone would try treat those seriously I, I but the point is is that it's there right it, it's that people are saying it and therefore it's a thing um, and, you know, very central to a lot of discussions about the management of, of politics and particularly in, in the kind of European sphere. So, you know, a major reference point, and maybe we can um, ask a question about why he seems less relevant today. I, at least that's my impression. He's older, I think. And I think, I mean, certainly the way in which he was presented, um, you know, during my the early phase of my academic career, at least as a student, was um, as the kind of... Uh, as you know, kind of as George said, the kind of the pinnacle of critical theory, the inheritor of uh, you know Horkheimer and Adorno. Um, there was a you know it was alluded to that there were some kind of differences and perhaps some disagreements, um, but he was understood to be the the you know the kind of the leg the car the bearer of the legacy in a direct kind of genetic lineage essentially to you know to Adorno and Horkheimer and through them to Marx. And perhaps even to Hegel, and so the assumption in that lineage was that there had been kind of evolution and development, and so we had made some advances and problems, and uh, you know, problems and mistakes had been left behind in the past and were buried, and that we had this kind of new set of problems to work through and think through with the material provided by Habermas. But the assumption was, I think, in the way in which it was always presented, was that. Um, you know, the kind of, there had been a surpassing of uh, some kind of Marxist problematiques, which had been, which didn't need to be dug up or considered. Um, and that was, I think, a way of kind of maintaining a certain radical, giving Habermas a certain kind of radical sheen on campus without being, at the same time, without being uh, too kind of toxic or dangerous for consideration in the university classroom. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's probably about right. It's kind of like, marxism but more more evolved um or at least that's how it was was presented like critical theory is kind of a smoother it's kind of also a bit cooler marxism is a bit kind of reductive and 
uh, banging on about economics again, whereas critical theory is a bit, oh, talk about kind of jazz and, and um, advertising <laughs> or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm being a bit unfair to, to critical theorists, perhaps, and um, being a bit too critical, maybe. Um, but just, I guess, two bits of context around um, the book before we kind of get into the text itself. So I think, you know, reading it back now, um, you know, first published in German in 73, I think it definitely bears the imprint of that time. So it's got this, you know, still in the post-war boom, the economy, you know, at that point maybe seemed to have stabilized the crisis or crisis tendencies. Maybe they've been overcome through Keynesianism and welfareism, but there's also this, you know, echo of 68 in there as well. There's clearly, you know, that's a sort of crisis or that's a sort of problem that it's addressing is what does 68 mean like is that enough to it's it's clearly challenging the legitimacy of capitalism and the social order um but maybe not changing things so that's an interesting kind of maybe parallel with with some of the things that we started and, and, off and with. without the economic crisis that one would expect to accompany such a such an yes in, in radicalism yeah yeah exactly so it's um a crisis at one level but not at the economic level perhaps or or that's one reading of it and that's certainly you know, could could be thought to be kind of counter to um, a, a, a vulgar Marxism, which would say you have to have an economic crisis first, which then has, um, you know, social crises after it, which, are, you know, we can say is not actually accurate, but that's that's a crude kind of caricature. Um, and I guess the second thing, just a bit of context in terms of the theoretical foundation. So engages a lot with with systems theory. So Essentially, this is, you know, part of a, you could say a traditional, yeah, part of a tradition in sociology that see, basically sees societies as, as systems. I mean, that's why it's called system theory, obviously. Um, so series of kind of interrelated parts constituting a complex whole. And this, I think, is an interesting point of departure because my understanding is that systems theory thinkers tend to emphasize um, stability or what makes the system perpetuate itself rather than what changes. But maybe in in emphasizing stability, you know, it brings about the question naturally of, of what causes those changes. And so the crisis is something external to the system, which causes it to change perhaps. But, you know, we can kind of go into that. But a couple of the key thinkers there, which he which he clear, either references a lot or, or clearly engages with their ideas. The first is Talcott Parsons, who's the American, very influential American um, mid-century um, sociologist who basically said the first law of social processes is that a given social system will function to maintain itself so this idea functionalism as it's often kind of thought about that this is structural how... functionalism structural functionalism what's the non-structural functionalism no answer that's a no, trick question uh, no it's it does <laughs> well then what's the structural adding if you can't have the opposite of there's it. a structure that's functioning <laughs> okay okay uh, let's <laughs> I mean, move on filth, filth. are you getting like dumber in real time here by the end of the episode <laughs> no i yeah so it's um i guess actually functional functionalism is like a different uh if i remember correctly there is a different or it it, it means something slightly different in the history of sociological thought where a culture is functional for the perpetuation of a system but the structural functionalism is the the self-maintaining um, 
assumption of uh, or this assumption that you give to systems they are self or structures they are self-maintaining um but parsons was also interested in the question of what sort of theory of action can account for the existence of a social order in the first place and that's something which habermas was to take on when he um kind of addressed these ideas of of communicative action that there must be a certain sort of human action which grounds society in the first place um and the other thinker just um finally before we move on to the text is nicholas lerman um and he you know that's a very hardcore very german um social um kind of system is it lumen well it I is baz it. it's baz lerman the director <laughs> and nico nicholas lumen is is baz lerman a south african i think he might yeah i think, I think so but that's not relevant at all yeah but it's lumen but I'm just I'm making I'm making I'm giving everything an Anglo inflection. So if they're German, I'll pretend they're South African. Anyway, so Lerman, uh, social systems kind of approach. Um, yeah, I think he very influenced by like ideas around networks of communication, and his you know essential idea is that those is that social systems can become self-referential and self-reliant. They kind of detach themselves. In my understanding of his work, not that I've read it for quite a while now um yeah kind of become distinct from their environment and um you know functioning um on their own terms distinct from that um from the situations in which they're embedded in so today first section of the book um a social scientific concepts of crisis. So I've incorporated some listener questions into the main body of the discussion. So thanks as always for those. Um, and please keep them coming through as we move through the book. So yeah, as Alex said already, the oh, and crisis... Sorry, just, just, to, just for listeners, yeah. if you have a question about something we've discussed in this episode, so it doesn't need to just be about the next section of the book, if there are wider reflections or indeed something you didn't understand in this episode, make sure to bring us up on it because if we pa we might pass over something quickly or take it as read or not explain it out properly, make sure to um, ask us about it so we can um, clarify. We might just get it wrong. We might, we might just, just get it wrong. Disagree. Also. I mean, yeah, do, do disagree. Um, so yeah, as Alex said, it is relatively short, this this book, but I think it's safe to say it's written in fairly careful, technical, sociological language. In other words, it's definitely by a German. Um, and so we you know, need to unpick some of that and make sure we establish some of those terms um, without being too jargonistic. Um, so yeah, just to kick things off, you know, we talked about crisis already a little bit. Um, and Habermas starts by talking about the medical uses of, usage of crisis and then the dramaturgical so what features of a model of medical crisis, which he sort of says, this is the original starting point of this idea, um, does he bring out and, and why do you think he does that? It's a cliche. Um, you know, this kind of uh, crisis is the, you know, it's borrowed from medicine and it's the point at which you make the intervention and the patient gets better or the patient dies. I suppose rereading this, I had the question in my mind whether or not this was the first time somebody had thought of it in that way. Right. Um, and it also made me wonder about how far, um, you know, how important, I suppose. And I, these are questions I don't know the answers to, um, but I'm, you know, I'm asking them, I suppose. Perhaps our listeners might know the answers or maybe one of maybe you guys do, uh, you know, whether or not this was the moment at which um, there was the transplantation 
of the idea of crisis from the Marxist uh, kind of the Marxist set of theories and the idea of economic crisis that it was transplanted and absorbed into social theory more broadly. I mean, that's what he sets out to do here. So the thing which I thought was interesting was the fact that he bring he relates it to the classical aesthetics of crisis, which is not normally done. Um, and also, though, uh, he makes an interesting kind of, you know, there's an interesting point, right, which isn't normally said with relation to crisis. And I was struck by it because it also seems to sit ill at ease with Habermas's um, kind of weird, his weird scientistic language, where he says, um, we therefore, this is uh, towards the bottom of the first page, we therefore associate with crisis the idea of, of an objective force that deprives a subject of some part of his normal sovereignty. To be conceive of a process as a crisis is tacitly to give it a normative meaning. The resolution of the crisis affects a liberation of the subject caught up in it. And that seems to me kind of a very striking formulation um, and one that's worth thinking about because it doesn't seem to me it's implicit in the idea of crisis at all. It might be implicit in the idea of, I don't even think it's implicit in medical crisis, and I don't think it's implicit in the Marxist notion of crisis either. I mean, only potentially, right? Um, but anyway, it's. Uh, I thought it was. Uh, it was an interesting. Yeah. yeah. I just I just to was... tack on something to that yeah. is just that the you know the body in crisis and in kind of medical sense, this organic metaphor, biological metaphor, seems to be something which um, you know talks about it in terms of being an objective, purely objective matter of an autonomous system, right? Of feedback loops and so on, that the way that the body functions and that that becomes interrupted. But importantly, he brings in, you know, the question of, of the subjective aspect of the patient actually being aware of their body being in crisis. And that already kind of hints a little bit at um, where he's going to go with this, I think, in terms of, you know, the to what extent these objective crises have subjective um, reflected subjectively in terms of at least the consciousness of crisis and eventually the response to it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this this point about the, the crisis and its relation to to like essentially resolution because the um, is is, a, is an important one because in the medical context the you know the patient is in a state of crisis. This is objective. It's um, external to the to the organism, the patient feels helplessness. Um, and it is the phase of an illness that decides whether that organism's self-healing powers are sufficient or not. But either way, either kind of resolution, the patient gets better or the patient uh, doesn't, <clears throat> is a sort of liberation because it's the, the period of crisis is experienced as, um, you know, painful and one related to, I guess, helplessness as, as well. So the resolution, um, gives gives the kind of the crisis its, its meaning to a certain extent and i think that's the same with the um you know classical drama it's a turning point so the the way in which the crisis gets resolved essentially determines whether you're looking at you might say whether looking at tragedy or, or comedy because <clears throat> uh there are certain resolutions to crises which um give that crisis a very different uh meaning retrospectively in in the kind of um dramatic context but yeah i think alex that point about the subjective and objective that's you know something which um i think is also very relevant today in terms of you know the, the our starting point like just you know <clears throat> do we have an objective crisis is it experienced as subjective is it politicized all of that um sort of thing but obviously we'll dig into that as we as we move through yeah so i guess mo much of the first section of the book 
is concerned with some of this essentially like you would i think you'd kind of call it world building if this was a fantasy novel um or something or a show like like that but it's concerned with building habermas is quite abstract model of society or like the sorts of things that could be societies or something along those lines but i think societies is important in plural because it's 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 scope of ambition is of saying this is the way society functions kind of Mm. across history and we're going to come to the kind of ways he he talks about the differences between capitalism and, and preceding social orders yeah no that is actually a good point it's it's about all potential past present future forms of society um to all societies um yeah so he i guess you know fairly early on he establishes some quite i think precise criteria for what sort of in the most abstract sense like given we've just heard about the medical um situation this is period of illness determines whether the patient's self-healing qualities are sufficient um or whether they're not um but yeah what sort of things um in that most abstract way does Habermas say count as a as a crisis um when you're talking about societies Well, I mean, I think the concept of steering is pretty central and it's a term that occurs throughout this and it's a, also a term which I haven't encountered in many other places. I mean, I think it's quite particular to the to the kind of language and the, the thing that Habermas yeah. is sort of building here. Um, I'm not actually sure where it comes from, whether it's something that comes from systems theory or he introduces um, in his discussion. But, um, you know, cri- these are crises, uh, crisis occurrences owe their objectivity to the fact that they issue from unresolved steering problems. Um, so there's a sense of problems building up within the steering capacity, which is, you know, the brain of the body, if you like, um, which tries to maintain this homeostatic system. But then there's problems in, in doing that and they build up and then it, it comes to a crisis. Um and that, I guess, can happen in different different areas of society, right? You can have a, a purely political crisis. You can have economic crisis, which is a f- facet of the pol- political steering system not not no longer being able to maintain the economy on a on a even keel. Yeah, I mean, so he's 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 clearly concerned with this. Uh, yeah, we can maybe go into this this idea of um, steering. Uh, steering problems which is is just seems like a very particular way i don't know what the german is and maybe there are were a number of different choices and it could could have been a number of different things but that is the he's clearly concerned to say there is a a way in which society is is managed or directed and the objective form of crisis comes from a a problem within that that aspect that part of the social system which is responsible for doing the brain work essentially as you as you put it alex yeah System integration, yeah. Well, it's like so... an automobile where we have a steering problem. Anyway, I know we have lots of German listeners, and they're probably like, "Fuck you guys." So apologies. <laughs> but do you need, do you have? St- I mean, on, I, I thought the autobahns are so straight that you don't. If, if you have steering problems, doesn't matter. You just keep going in a straight line. Mm. Um, but if that's the objective, what is the subjective um, aspect of it? Because I think he is, you know, he is quite keen to 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 make good on that kind of you know um, that analogy with the medical where you have the you know the patient the pa- patients don't like crises crises it, it turns out so yeah phil any thoughts on on that yeah i mean so he's i mean as part of this thing i suppose 
there's a sense in which, you know, he wants to make sure that it's understood that what he's talking about is people. And so he talks in terms of, um, he wants to make clear that this idea of systemic integration and the integrative processes that keep society coherent, supposedly, that these also are socialization processes that will inevitably be experienced through, or could at least, depending on the character of the crisis, experienced through people's kind of everyday understanding, through their identities, through the way in which they relate to everybody else, through their internal experience. Um, And so I think there's an effort to kind of ensure that what he's trying to do is he's trying to thread conceptually thread through the sense of crisis into to ensure that it's embedded internally understood to be embedded internally within people itself with themselves yeah i mean i guess that was basically my understanding as well i guess you have to do some work to kind of pick pick out some of these um these things even when you find the right kind of uh, few sentences where he's explicating what's going on you still have to read it quite carefully and i guess my my kind of summary almost of this is that you have this this kind of objective question um if you will around system integration so the structural properties of social systems come together and produce an integrated and stable whole if what is it within those structural properties and the way that they relate to each other which can can cause crises well this is what he was you know what we were talking about with the problem around um steering problems fundamentally and we can kind of go into that in a bit more detail but at the same time you have a system integration which is that objective structural you have social integration this is perspective of actors yeah, when they intersect systems. yeah yeah they they, they so do he intersect. says yeah he says this on page three very clearly he says when members of a society experience structural alterations as critical for continued existence and feel their social identity threatened can we speak of crises Disturbances of system integration endanger continued existence only to the extent that social integration is at stake. That is when the consensual foundations of normative structures are so much impaired that the society becomes anomic. So yeah. I think, I mean, that's the, you know, that's how he connects the two things. Um, and it's an interesting thought, you know, can you have a cry? I mean, I guess it goes back to that question about the 2008 great financial crash because you know on a day to day level i remember like i remember a banker friend of mine ex friend of mine in fact now um but he said at the time you know there was this thing he was the first one to tell me it then kind of spilled out into the papers at the time you know the atms this was back in the day when people still used atms but the atms were a few hours away from running out of cash you know like there was just the um the the global financial system was literally in danger of seizing up but everyone, you know, kind of the whole everyday life just continued. You know, there was no kind of sense. There were people lost their homes in the US, but at least in, you know, at least in Europe and in the UK, there was no sense that there was kind of uh, this tremendous um, trembling, you know, of the so of the pillars of society. Yeah, they it took until austerity. It took until austerity for that to seem to happen. Yeah, and it was only even, because, yeah. It was even a with the bank run. The, yeah. yeah, even with the great kind of the, um, what was it called, Northern Rock, there was the yeah. first kind of bank run since Victorian times, even that felt completely kind of hyper real. You know, when you saw people queuing outside this kind of crappy Richard Branson bank, it didn't make you want to run to your own bank and make sure that you get your, um, you got your cash out. And austerity, even by the time you got to austerity, it wasn't a crisis. That was the kind of, you know, it didn't feel like it, that just felt like 
the walls closing in a bit, you know? Well, like, and, I, and I mean, t- two points that um, we can draw from Wolfgang Strick's work on this, like kind of simple, but one is kicking the can down the road, right? That there's a way that, that the crisis uh, was absorbed, um, but it means that it has long-term consequences, which get played out slowly and filtered through into um, the political system, into culture and society, um, not just experienced purely economically. Um, and the other one is very closely related is the way that the um, economic crisis was leveraged into a kind of political crisis. That was the form in which the economic crisis was resolved. Um, and again, so it's like, okay, we bail out the banks, but then we impose austerity. So instead of having an, an, a, an immediate um, crisis, like kind of time compression, where suddenly everything falls apart, there's a huge um, destruction of capital and so on, like that's kind of that prevented from happening. And so it... Yeah. plays out not in its immediate sense so it's not the kind of i guess there's i don't know if it, if it would be correct correct me if i'm wrong guys like that to just <laughs> to describe this as you know that was a problem of system integration um which somehow or system th- steering yeah yeah it doesn't get doesn't get it gets transferred over into so, a problem of social integration only kind of slowly somehow i don't know yeah. in a delayed sense so this is this I think is is what is the you know the point that I I think I wanted to draw out here is that I think Habermas assumes that this system integration so structural properties and social integration so perspective of actors within systems focusing on norms theory of action not structures that they're kind of then that you have to experience them and he even says this um, crisis states assume the form of a disintegration of social institutions so any there is that subjective and objective aspects which are coupled. And I don't think they necessarily are, or it seems like the crises that we've had in the past 20-ish years, they they seem to be uncoupled. They seem to be a delay between one and the other. There seems, as Phil, as you were saying, there seems to be possible that there's a, the system, integ- system is disintegrating and society is quite integrated or vice versa. Society seems to be disintegrating and it doesn't seem to have any um, necessary correlate in terms of system disintegration so i don't i mean i don't know if if that's if that's kind of too simple yeah i mean i mean if habam you know if we want to accept habamas's conceptualization then the two spheres seem to be disconnected for whatever reason um or at least they're not kind of um overlapping and intersecting in the way in which he's discussing in at the in the opening of his book it might be also worth i mean as we're as we're going through this as well because we keep referring to the global financial crisis and you know understandably but also maybe worth thinking about this in terms of 1972 when this was published or maybe kind of very early 70s late 60s when Habermas is working on these ideas and put ourselves in the mind space of of that era and to think through kind of what he was referring to in terms of crises because it's a rather different scenario to ours today or even if we want to take the liberty of doing it um, to to talk about something that came immediately after Habermas um, which was 1970, right after this book was published, excuse me, um, 1973, which um, arguably is when things really start to fall apart. Um, that is the end of history moment, or that is when the end of history begins to end. <laughs> history begins to end no. in 1973. Um, yeah. Veto that. It's, it's too too many beginnings and ends. But no, yeah. I, I yeah, I think um, I think you can take the liberty of, of doing that, of applying a theory of, of crisis. Given, given how general he wants to make it, to successive crises and then you can either 
say, well, the theory doesn't work, or you can say, well, maybe these weren't crises, because as we started off by saying, it's a word that seems to get thrown around pretty indiscriminately. Um, but I did want to move, I mean, we could maybe come back to that, because it is an interesting one. But I did want to move through some of the, I guess, some of the definitions. And, you know, shout out to Habermas for for having a lot of tables in this um, in this book. And regular listeners will know that I'm definitely <laughs> a fan of, of tables in, in this case like, i have to agree it really like it's very necessary because you're reading this stuff and you're like i'm not sure i've understood this and then you see the table you're like okay i can kind of arrange the the thoughts in my head and, and make sense of it so yeah i guess one of the 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 first tables or one of the ones that i think is is particularly good is his kind of schematic model of subsystems normative structures substratum categories so obviously like talking through a table um is rather than seeing it is um a bit more work and can be a bit more confusing but i did want to ask the two of you whether you kind of find this this model subsystem kind of have social socio-cultural political and economic subsystems and they have kind of distinctive structures within them and, and categories is this is this sort of thing useful like having this general a model of um of societies well, I mean, I think there's a tacit, you know, of political, economic, and sociocultural. Okay, those are kind of spheres. He uses the term subsystem. Um, much later on, there's a lot of talk of spheres, but this is a kind of 80s, 90s vogue in academia. But anyway, um, you know, these subsystems, everybody knows that, right? Um, the way those things work, the substratum categories, I think is also useful and, and comprehensible, right? Um, so, you know, the, the economic is the distribution of economic power and structural force and the available forces of production. Okay, that seems to be fairly straightforward. Um, and we can go through, you know, the other ones as well. And I, I think they're understandable, comprehensible. What I don't understand very well, or is a more opaque term, is normative structures, which is one of the other columns there. If you're following along, looking at the book on page six, um, do you guys do you guys have a good, would you guys have a good explanation for what normative structures are? I find it a little bit maybe it's the, the term normative like which modes, throws me. But it's like codes of what are seen to be appropriate behavior in any particular domain. Um, I don't I don't know if you know that doesn't kind of trouble me so much. My problem with this kind of subsystem thing is like it suggests like you know there are kind of um, three engines you know, all running concurrently. And so you've got kind of three boxes with gears and little belts and, you know, little kind of um, cogs in them. And they're all these three boxes kind of alongside each other and they're each running kind of concurrently, independently of each other. Um, but there are also some tubes that go between them. And it just looks like this cement kind of, when he talks about subsystems in this way, um, what I picture or kind of the image that comes to my mind is this... Um, immensely kind of overcomplicated contraption with too many kind of interconnections. Um, it's And it's not clear, you know, how they relate to each other. Um, so this attempt to kind of uh, compartmentalize these different levels into, or these different things into uh, different boxes, which are in some sense uh, equivalent to each other or equally kind of of the same size and significance and scale. It just doesn't seem to me to really, um, you know, it's kind of, it, yeah, it doesn't seem to me to really clarify particularly. I mean, it's Maybe a, it, I'm just too old fashioned in my, uh, you know, I think you kind of contradictions between forces and relations of production seems to me like, you know, sufficient to do the job, but uh, he wants subsystems as well. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, the you know the systems theoretical approach here necessitates this, right? And it's all very skeletal with very little coloring in. You know, to, to use the body metaphor, there's maybe not that many kind of muscles and things. It's just skeletons and maybe some organs, um, and that makes it quite dry. I think just as it's maybe a bit of a tangent, but in terms of like method of presentation, right? Like this is very kind of schematic. It's very hard structures. It's this incredibly complex machine. It puts you in mind of kind of Rand Corporation technocrats from the 1950s building this machine of how to, you know, kind of organize Yeah, he's very much into his cybernetics. It's, and it's very, it's very much of its time, right? This was like the state taking on the role of um, stabilizing the economy and overcoming crisis. You know, I mean, that was kind of um, what was believed to, to be going on there. And and it lasted for, for a long time. Um but yeah, I think just that we can contrast opening, that. It's an because... opening sentence we didn't mention, but is worth mentioning in relation to what you're saying, Alex. He says, to use the expression late capitalism is to put forward the hypothesis that even in state-regulated capitalism, social developments involve contradictions or crises. Hmm. So I think that's, you know, he's making the claim that you have, even when you have this degree of conscious uh, management of the economy, essentially, which is, you know, what you have in the post-war era, you still have... You still have to account for why we have crises, and yeah. that's what he's that's what he's trying to do. And it's an important, you know, it's an important um, challenge. And I think you're right. I mean, it's that we should remind ourselves that the kind of structural functionalism and uh, Talcott Parsons systems theory and all that kind of sociology was very much shaped by the political ambition of the post-war states that they thought they had levers, they thought they had machinery, and you know, they thought they could manage these. Um, yeah, they thought they could manage industrial society. Yeah. And what makes Habermas a critical theory is is this fact that, you know, he recognizes contradiction. So it's not this overly functionalist thing where it's like, wow, this is a seamless machine, you know, <laughs> it just needs to be operated properly. Um, but just to, I was talking about kind of method of presentation, I think one can compare this to much more, you know, like to, to Marx's writing where it's much more poetic, I guess, if, to put it to put it that way, right? And it's interesting, like, obviously, um, in capital, it's a very systematic building up of starting from well, the molecular level. Of, it's dialectical. is not. Exa- well, yeah, exactly. I think certainly in the, in the kind of presentation of it that there's things that are kind of alive and you can't capture everything in words when you're trying to describe something that's alive um, because it's constantly changing. And so you have to kind of maybe do a lot more coloring in give more impression of what's happening rather than say systematically like a is b a b c one two three in a table all laid out right um and they're kind of maybe different ways of of thinking about the world and i don't know what it's maybe worth asking what's most useful because ultimately you know critical theory is the aim is for you to be able to change society having understood it um and you know is having such a um you know kind of hard machine-like critical theory yeah, I, I think sure. So, I mean, all critical theory has the, has the intention of changing the world. I mean, yeah, I know, but the point is, his is his explicitly imports the you know the functionalism of a particular American um, social science. He wants to make it kind of. He wants to give it this um, this yeah, scientific. He wants to stamp it with this kind yeah. of scientific sense, which is you know suppose you know supposedly lacking in the um, in the Hegelian kind of approach. Yeah. So he's deliberately trying to get away from it. Um, yeah, no, and I mean, there is, there's the, the, also it also a just, just as, yeah, oh, go sorry. on, Alex. 
Well, I, ju I just wanted to finish off the thought, which is, you know, th there's a contrast between what counts as science um, and scientism even in, from the 19th century versus, um, you know, in the mid 20th century. Uh, and, and, you know, it becomes a lot more kind of, I guess, rigid in a way um, and less, yeah, less, less kind of poetic. There's less elan, I guess, in, in, the, in the depiction of society. And maybe it becomes less useful because it just, I don't know, it's too much of this kind of hard, distant system. And with Marx, it feels very alive and present. So, you know. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say there's not a great deal of elan in this, in this book. Um, but what it does have, I think, is, and, this, you know, to link it back to the political and historical context, this like the idea of this distinct this contradiction between productive forces and productive relations that model you suggested phil that's not complex enough that's not like that's not you need something which is a little bit more complex but not too complex i think in it for its time this kind of hits the nail on the head with the level of of complexity of this particular presentation this idea that i think it's very weberian so you have this idea of from weber class status and party so power in economic sphere class power in cultural sphere status power in political sphere party so and that's essentially what i think habermas does with these three different categories so you have socio-cultural but let's just call that culture status systems so cultural forms of life i mean what does that really mean it means status that kind of system um and then you know how does that work just distribution of privately available rewards and rights of disposition so it's kind of everything that weber talked about closure or like excluding people and kind of you know mechanisms in that kind of uh, social context in political sphere you have political institutions like the state how do they work distribution of legitimate power and structural force he also talks about available organization rationality and i guess that's how systems how political systems function we can kind of put that to one side and then he also includes though the marxist bit i.e economics how does that work or what is the, the normative structures? Uh, what are they? Economic institutions, i.e. relations of production. And then what are the substratum categories or what, you know, how does that work? Well, it's the productive forces. So you have included in this model, but relegated to one within three, um, th this kind of simplistic, crude, productive forces, productive relations model. So I think there is a, an element of, of kind of <clears throat> trying to be slightly more complex and you know more evolved as we said than, than marxism by saying well doesn't doesn't kind of culture exist my friend doesn't um politics and uh isn't that a bit different you don't want to boil it all down to productive forces and productive relations so i think that's you know that kind of complexification is not a bug it's a design or it's not accidental i think it's a better way to put it anyway um i think you know it's useful to go to continue going through some of the this kind of um pr quite precise uh language and trying to get the terms correct because this obviously is the foundation So yeah, one question um, that I wanted to kind of talk about is, I guess the, you know, the effect of some recent historical changes on the individual or how individuals um, kind of experience um, some of these changes. So Habermas on page fourteen talks about individuation, 
Um, and he says, with growing individuation, the, immuni the immunization of socialized individuals against decisions of the differentiated control center seems to gain strength. The normative structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism via the imperatives of power expansion. Um, so I guess there's a, you know, a job of kind of interpreting that to do um, and working out exactly what he's he's saying. But I think one interpretation of this could be that individuation um, leads to an increasing likelihood that individuals will become critical of and um, resist um, the authority of or resist, resist subjection to the kind of that technocratic decisions from the differentiated control center. So I guess one question or one way to frame this um, and, you know, disagree with the interpretation that I've given to that, that passage or, or, you know, the premise of the question as well, if you, if you think that's warranted, but is Habermas predicting that the development of the welfare state kind of leads to its own undermining since the individuation it helps um, set the material basis for also produces conditions of detachment um, from it and resistance to it. Yeah, so I, th I found this quite paradoxical and I've gone back and forth on it. Funnily enough, I mean, I'm glad that, you know, you put this question in and, and that's one of the listeners, I think, prompted us to, to discuss this um, because I put in the margins right there, like on that bit. Is this true? Um, and, I, you know, one interpretation um, is that, you know, this is obviously, you know, the, the self-reflexive subject that emerges um, in the, you know, post-war era that becomes a kind of critical citizen and so on. And... Um, you think that's true, but then you think about it now and you think, well, no, but people are withdrawn from politics. Um, they're not kind of critical citizens, but they're passive and to a certain extent conformist, right? They kind of go along with things. I mean, that's been, that's the kind of the feature of our times, right? People are maybe now, especially, you know, in the end of the end of history, upset about things. But, you know, um, there's kind of sporadic protests, maybe riots, but it, it seems not to, anyway, we, we all know what the world looks like today. I don't need to elaborate too much. Um, so the, the, the question then is, is Habermas wrong? Or does it mean, on the contrary, that individuation has maybe gone into reverse, that we're not as individuated as we think we are, because society has become much more conformist. We've been formed into a kind of a, a mass, um, a kind of passive mass. I don't know. I read this differently. So I read this, he's saying... The more individuation you have, the immunization of socialized individuals against decisions seems to gain strength. So people become more detached. The more individuation you have, the more detached people are from the control center. Normative mm. structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism vis-a-vis -vis imperatives of power expansion. So you have the kind of, if you have these normative structures associated with individuation, you have a distance from those power centers. I read it the opposite of what mm. you guys are saying. If that's the case, then I, I think that's much more straightforward. Yeah, I think that's kind then of, you, go... you know, if you wanted to kind of interpret this crudely, the way I think, you know, what, what he's kind of saying is, you know, if you have individuals who are concerned with their private lives and consumerism, you know, they will be, and they think of themselves as um, separated from these kind of larger social processes. That's the way they'll behave and they'll be immunized against the breakdown of these centralized um, processes. Yes, I think, I think that, that breakdown? works. Hmm. That yeah, works okay, up until a point because, you know, the, the bit which you read out, the normative structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism vis-a-vis -vis imperatives of power expansion. So the increase of state power would be held back to a certain extent by the individuation. 
because through these normative structures. No, self-inhibiting individuals. This is the problem of translating German into English. You can't see what's being referred to, but he's saying like, I think the self-inhibiting is these normative kind of restraints that are associated with individuation means that you're you're inhibited from responding. Mm. Self-inhibiting is referring to the inhibitions on individuals. It's not referring to power centers being inhibited. So you would read it as him saying <clears throat> that as people become increasingly individuated, they are less likely to um, resist the imperatives of power expansion. So you actually yes. have... Mm, the immunization of socialized individuals seems to gain strength. Immunization, i.e. they're unresponsive to decisions of differentiated control centers. Normative structures become effective as a kind of self-inhibiting mechanism. Inhibiting. Uh, made, made immune, as in made uh, not, not active, made kind of um, unable to resist. I think... So I guess a bit of context here for, for listeners in terms of what he's talking about in around these, this kind of passage. And, you know, you can uh, read it yourselves and make up your own decisions as well um, as, to who, as to what exactly he's, uh, he's saying. And I guess if, if you read German as well, you can um, even have, have, a, have a go at the, the German, I guess. Um, so he's, he's talking about steering capacity and he's talking about how you know, steering capacity is related to control of outer nature and integration of inner nature. So there's this clear, like, idea that the this is one thing that societies, and it's kind of obvious, I guess, that societies uh, are faced with a problem of is responding to the external environment and also needing to socialize individuals and so kind of essentially take the inner nature that, that people have and, and make that into a form that can then be integrated um, socially. So I think there is a, you know, he's clearly talking about what are the trends and the um, kind of dynamics that allow a state or allow the political sort of aspects of of a state to interact with, I guess, the, the social or the cultural, socio-cultural aspects of individuals. So... Mm-hmm. This is. I don't know if that actually helps or not. I thought it would actually. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I, I'm still shed I'm, some light. I'm still, I'm still kind of in two minds about it because I also think you know maybe to place it in its context, he's writing this you know after the great individualist revolt, um, even maybe post materialist revolt of the late '60s, um, where self actualization becomes a central you know concern in people's claims, the political claims that they make, the, or, you know, the kind of validity claims to put in Habermasian language. So, um, you know, does that mean that these people are immune from um, the expansion of state power and that they're, they're kind of unbothered? Um, does it mean that they actually respond more to it? You know, I, I'm I'm in two minds about maybe we can come back, maybe we can kind of investigate a little bit further to see people, if someone has kind of written on this and, and explicated it out, because I'm, I'm still in, in two minds about it. It's an important question to kind of pick up throughout the, the book because whatever situation faced Habermas in 73, the individuation and the atomization, that kind of, you know, you could talk about that in one sense of, you know, kind of disintegration of some um, of previously more integrated social um, institutions. That's clearly something which, you know, we talked about a lot on this podcast and is is obviously very relevant here. 
Um, but yeah, maybe we can uh, we can continue to talk about this one. I'm sure it will come up in various guises. Um, but just moving on to the third chapter of the book. So we're doing four chapters. They're all relatively short. So you could say it's one chapter with four um, parts. But the third chapter of the book deals with different social principles of um, organization for different sorts of societies. So here, I think Habermas, I, I, you know, I very unfairly said this book doesn't have any elan. I mean, in the in the prose, maybe not. But in terms of the making of models, maybe it definitely does. Because um, he really does sketch out here four different sorts of social formation, which are like exhaustive of the sorts of social formation that humans engage in. And I don't know, maybe even any life I don't know how trans um, speciesist or, or global, um, sorry, not global, like universal in the sense of the whole universe, Habermas's theory of community of action uh, could be. But anyway, um, four different social sorts of. I'll ask my cat whether she, you know, thinks. Yeah, I'll see what validity claims she makes. Like, feed me. The mm, UFOs are you have landed. Hungry? Yeah, have the UFOs landed, George. I don't really know what you're getting at. I'm just saying, like, why, like, is there any reason that ha- that you could give why Habermas's theory wouldn't apply to any sort of animal capable of making a society? Because I think he would say you have to have, I mean, it's the same with Haglands. Like, well, sorry, it wouldn't I'm, I'm apply thinking... to bees and bees and ants, would it? Because they don't have to be socialized. Yeah, but like, it's say there's another, nature. say there's an alien which is able to have language and to communicate and have societies. Would they have class societies? Would they have free time? Would they have? I mean, if you if we've got any <laughs> listeners from from very far afield, um, do you mean some Argentinian pasadists? Anyway, no, not... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it would be um, more advanced because if we could get if we could know about them, they would have come here, which means they're a more advanced society, which means they're communist. So the only aliens possible are communist aliens. Next, okay, that was pretty uh, easily done with. Anyway, sorry, I, I kind of got a bit um, bit sidetracked there because I was trying to paint with as broad a, a broad as canvas as possible and went too broad. Um, but yeah, four sorts of social formation, primitive, traditional, capitalist and post-capitalist. Um, and he, he basically says only primitive and um, uh, social formations are not class societies. All the rest are. He also has postmodern, but we don't need to get into that, which is not class society. So, you know, this is the... Um, I guess the kind of dominant model for human history kind of heard that one before. So that's, this is the, the, the conditions under which this model of um, crisis tendencies of society, of class societies functions. But I guess the kind of the rubber starts hitting the road um, where, and it's worth noting that he says liberal capitalists and organized or advanced capitalists are the two different sorts of capitalist society. But when he starts talking about um, liberal capitalist societies, that's where, you know, obviously bringing some of this more abstract schematic presentation to um, the much more concrete historical period, the one that we're possibly in today as well. So it's also becomes a lot more relevant that way. So although, you know, there is a lot of model building, what is the, um, when he starts talking about the characteristics of liberal capital societies that are relevant from a crisis perspective, did the two of you find this to be um, revealing or interesting or, or kind of relevant to some of the stuff we've we discussed right at the top? I mean, this is the more Marxism 101 bit, I think. 
I, I mean, this didn't strike me as as innovative from from Habermas's perspective, just in terms of liberal capitalism. And just to be clear, liberal capitalism, you know, ends in 1913, um, you know, conventionally, as we would understand it. So, um, you know, we're talking we're talking basically about 19th century capitalism and not the capitalism of uh, of, of Habermas's time, I think, because when we look at the a kind of table on page um, 17, um, there's capital, capitalist is broken down into liberal capitalist and then organized or advanced capitalist. So um, in talking about the kind of liberal capitalist social formation, it means kind of classical capitalism of the kind of 19th and early 20th century. Um, and there, you know, it, it's unlike... Um, Unlike in under feudalism, under traditional society, uh, you have a depoliticization of the class relationship and anonymization of class domination. So this is basically the idea of commodity fetishism that you don't actually see the the, the forms of domination there; they're obscured um, and fetishized. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't, I don't think there's anything that innovative or worth noting about this personally. Phil, are you similar, jaded? seen it all before nothing new under the sun um yes so yep yeah, heard it heard it all before it's all um it's all old old hat um but no i think there's i think there is something just worth running through the the logic or the presentation a little bit so this idea being under liberal capitalist um societies you have unpolitical class rule um the relationship between wage labor and capital Whereas in traditional societies, you have political class rule. So state power and socioeconomic classes is the way that he, he frames it, which is a, perhaps a slightly strange way. But this, um, you know, as Alex said, the, the anonymization is an important idea because this leads to a whole set of implications around people's identities and the way that people understand or the way that, so, sorry, not, I shouldn't say the way that people understand, the way that I should try and put it in more Habermasian terms, the way that social actors orient themselves to um, steering problems, to um, social and to system integration as well. So I, I guess obviously a lot of the um, the kind of the first chapter is a lot of um, that kind of laying out of here, some, here are some quite schematic models, here are some like very wide range of historical applicability. And then as he's starting to kind of or the, I guess the book opens up a lot as you move from this, you know, very carefully established foundation to, okay, how is it then that once we've got this kind of uh, apparatus at our um, disposal, how can we understand we've got the social scientific concept of crisis? How can we apply it? How can we actually kind of move to um, seeing, you know, it doesn't get completely concrete because it's still a, you know, German sociologist in the critical theory tradition. So there's still, you know, it's theory heavy, but I think hopefully that's that's useful. Uh, it's useful for us to take a bit of time to lay out some of these um, more abstract and uh, kind of schematic parts of the book. Um, so, any any concluding thoughts? Anything just to th to throw in there before we um, set up next time? Just one thing, um, which is, I think maybe a bit where it is a little bit more concrete and you go, okay, I recognize that, which is that um, the loyalty, this is on page 22, the loyalty and subordination of members of the new urban proletariat are certainly maintained more through a mixture of traditionalistic ties, fatalistic willingness to follow, lack of perspective and naked repression than through the convincing force of bourgeois ideologies. Um, 
But nevertheless, um, there's still the question that bourgeois society sets up a contradiction between idea and reality, between what it promises and, and the way things actually work, um, which the proletariat experiences to some extent directly or maybe indirectly, but it, it kind of it, it doesn't buy the bullshit so much. For this reason, the critique of bourgeois society could take the form of an unmasking of bourgeois ideologies themselves by confronting idea and reality. Now, I think two two things spring from this. One, um, the traditionalistic ties are not relevant today, maybe not even present anymore. Um, in the in you know in con- in contrast to kind of liberal capitalism, where you have a proletariat which is you know one or two generations ago were peasants, um, and brought with them a lot of those ties. And today you don't have that. You have kind of ersatz ones or new forms of it, identity politics being one of them. In in you know so you if you're immigrant group you might band together with your other immigrant groups and create a kind of economic network there, um, which insulates it somewhat from the class dynamics and so on. But it's not, you know, the traditionalism isn't there. It's really actually fatalism, (laughs) which is probably the most important um, today and most important factor rather than kind of bourgeois ideologies being convincing. Hamburg Master already was saying they weren't that convincing. The other thing I think that springs to mind, and this is, I'm just going to put this out there and to let it percolate and discuss it maybe later on, which is that I think we live in increasingly cynical times. We did a whole reading club section on cynical ideology um, that capitalism doesn't promise very much anymore. Even capitalism's defenders nowadays are basically like, yeah, look, this is only going to work for a couple of people for a section of society. um, And you just got to fight to get in that. Right. So, you know, if you want to you want to be part of the the bubble where you have success, you got to work for it and get in there. And that's about it. There is no prospect of kind of universal affluence, which capitalism used to sell. And I wonder what that means today, where you don't have um, even the kind of old bourgeois ideologies of promising things. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. I mean, the I guess if you're talking about consent and coercion, if you're talking about how legitimation and consent relate to each other and the mode of legitimation is fundamentally a a cynical one um what does that mean for a legitimation crisis or the possibility of having that because if you're already starting out that from a from a point that you know very little is promised um here or almost like this this is a i don't wonder if you could even have a legitimation strategy this is an illegitimate system but all the others are less or even worse or something like that i don't know but mm-hmm. i think that is one to to pick up um uh next time as well so yeah just um a, a look a glance forward um next time it's crisis tendencies in advanced capitalism featuring such such hits as theorems of economic crisis theorems of rationality crisis theorems of legitimation crisis theorems of motivation crisis and problems resulting from advanced capitalist growth so there's, you know, there's a lot to pick up there. Motivation crisis is definitely the crisis that we need to avoid. <laughs> very, very much so. Um, well, so it's also we can, the, we can have a rationality crisis in, on well, the podcast, but not a motivation. Yeah, but that one. makes. But I think rationality pod, rationality podcasting, rationality crisis makes for good podcasting. So that's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if we want to be actively podcasting crisis. Um, 
but yeah, when we we can, I guess, um, look at crisis, uh, a, a classification of possible crisis tendencies within the mode of podcasting. Uh, <laughs> if we, we we can do that at the at fourth yeah, episode maybe, in this, maybe not. I was going to say maybe. motivation. Motivation podcasting is def motivate. Jesus Christ, motivation crisis? crisis is definitely the crisis. I think of you know post uh, post lockdown society. Mm, indeed, yeah. Um, there's there's something to that, but also motivation podcasting, rationality podcasting, they exist. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay. So anyway, um, listener, once again, thank you very much for accompanying us uh, on this journey through this book and through the reading club in general. Uh, tell your friends, you know, if you're liking it, invite them along. Local reading clubs as well. If you want to join up with people where you are, we'll try to kind of mediate that, put you in touch, act as the node at the center of the network or whatever, and uh, and um. Well, we look forward to talking to you next time. Please send in your questions and comments, um, even dumb questions. Actually, the, the dumber questions sometimes are the most penetrating ones. So if you have just like, what the fuck does this actually mean? Do that. You don't need to try to sound smart, um, actually. Cause, uh, but it's fine if you are smart. Don't worry about it. It's fine if you are smart. You don't have, don't if, you are smart. if you're smart, don't pretend to be dumb. That's the worst. Um, no, do. Don't don't show us how smart you are because you might, <laughs> like, the question might be too difficult for us to answer. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, um, we hope you've taken something from this um, and we look forward to sharing the journey with you um, over the next three months. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.